Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yes, we love heroes, but we love villains even more. And there is no bigger villain than Jose Mourinho. In the sports world, the media thanks their lucky stars every day that Jose Mourinho is still employed. He is the gift that keeps on giving. Mourinho is not only good for the game, he's vital to the game. He plays the role he was born to play. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about Jose Mourinho and the conundrum uh, that we have with him. We'll also have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you today, Mossy? I am good. As a show of solidarity to uh, Ian Joy, I am rocking an FC St. Pauli jersey, the only club that matters in Hamburg. Uh, good point away in the Derby yesterday, a match we had uh, live on FS1. Yes, we had live on uh, national broadcast a uh, Bundesliga 2 matchup that, did, as you said, featured uh, St. Pauli. Uh, Ian Joy, I think it was there two hours early, all, all hyped up and ready to go for what it has to be said was not a very good game. You are wearing a black version, for those that can't see, of the St. Pauli uh, jersey. Uh, yesterday, we saw this team playing in what can only be described uh, as a um, crap brown. I think uh, is the uh, is the is the jargon right there. Did you see that? Did you did you like that jersey? Because Kate Abdo was having none of it. She said it's the ugliest jersey she's seen in a long time. Uh, yeah, I tend to agree with Kate. Uh, <laughs> so I'm very glad that this is the one he enjoyed gave me as a gift. Uh, speaking of Kate Abdo, by the way, as our workday was winding down, you asked me what I was doing the rest of the day. Uh, I I told you I'm an avid hiker now. I was going to go hiking, and both you and Kate we laughed. Uh, laughed. We laughed. You said there's no way that's true. Very condescending the implication being there's no way a lazy slob like you uh, would ever go hiking. And I did, in fact, go hiking, and I texted you guys pictures to prove it. And so you did. There well, you have it. I saw a still picture of you on a mountain, okay, uh, next, to, next to some other people. So uh, how you got to the top of that mountain, I do not know. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say, uh, well done on your hike yesterday. 
the irony is I looked so fat in that picture that it kind of validated your skepticism. It is hard <laughs> no, to believe that no, somebody no. that looks like that actually performs any athletic activity. You look great. So we had a good weekend, lots of uh, Bundesliga action and early uh, early mornings. Uh, Mossy finished it up with a nice hike. So much has happened over the last week. Uh, let's get to it. You ready? Yep. All right, let's light this candle. As you know, each and every week we start the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And it goes a little something like this. If all the world's a stage, then sports often provides this script. In this theater of sports, we love big personalities. We love larger-than-life characters. Yes, we love heroes, but we love villains even more. They command our attention, if not always our respect. We love to build them up and tear them down. And there is no bigger villain than Jose Mourinho. The not-so-dirty little secret is that outspoken, brash, and controversial figures, they sell. They drive content that, despite what we may say publicly, we all love to eat up. Just as in the political world where many in the media secretly love having President Trump because he's content mana from heaven, in the sports world, the media thanks their lucky stars every day that Jose Mourinho is still employed. He is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, we'll dissect and criticize and chastise people like Mourinho from our high horse, but behind our sanctimony, elitism, and hypocrisy is the quiet recognition that Mourinho's not only good for the game, he's vital to the game. He plays the role he was born to play, and his performance informs everything around him. Pep Guardiola, he looks like a very different person and coach without the juxtaposition with Mourinho. So, as we smell blood, revel in schadenfreude, Pick up our pitchforks and look to run Mourinho out of town for throwing a fit on stage like Elton John or playing to the cameras like a Kardashian or baiting the audience like Johnny Rotten. Let's just be careful what we wish for because a world without villains like Jose Mourinho is boring. And on any stage, being boring is the kiss of death. All right, Mossy, another Mourinho rant. And the ironic part is that one of the reasons why we are talking about Mourinho being vital, or at least I am, is because that he moves the needle, which is one of the reasons why this is a good State of the Union and this is good content to push out. Thoughts, comments, suggestions, criticisms? Yeah, I'm one of those people that likes to say I'm over Jose Mourinho, but Mm. I still take enormous pleasure in seeing him lose, which makes me think if I really was over it, I wouldn't care, which speaks to your point. Yeah, as far as the media... uh, Particularly in England, they they seem to find managers more compelling than players even. So I think in England, more so than any country he's managed in, the media just eats it up. They love talking about him. But I do think there's been a change in the tone and the coverage the last couple of years. Mourinho used to have this aura and this mystique about him, and I think that's gone. The media is a lot more negative now. I'm a lot more willing to call him out on his nonsense, partly because he's gone after the media. It's very Trump-esque the way he's tried to act like all the trouble at United is a media creation and fake news. And he said United fans are, are too smart to buy into that. They don't read newspapers papers. And so the whole thing has a kind of a Trump dynamic to it, which is fascinating. Do you think when you say you are over him, whether you are or not, are you over him in that you just want him to go away and that it is distracting when you read this and or it's just the same thing over and over again and therefore it gets redundant for you? Same thing over and over again. And also, I just find that there are more interesting things going on in the Premier League right now I want to focus on. I love the way teams like Manchester City and Liverpool and Chelsea are playing, and I want to kind of focus on the stuff on the field. And the Mourinho stuff seems like kind of a distraction from that. So me as sort of a hipster purist kind of, you know, wants to focus more on the stuff on elitist, the field. Elitist. Elitist, in, yeah. in terms of which. Look, I, I've argued that the reason why the EPL is the most popular and I think at times the most entertaining league in the world is because they churn this uh, and they love to 
generate these stories and foster these stories and keep them going. And they do it better than anybody in the world. And what happens off the field at times is as, and maybe as you said, sometimes even more important than what happens off the field. Or it's a, it, it's a companion piece in a way that other leagues uh, don't. We saw, uh, you know, for example, last year at Arsenal with, with Arsene Wenger, that whole saga that was that was fun. That was something that you you wanted to see. Uh, to people that said, "Oh, I took no pleasure in that." No, everybody took pleasure in it. Okay, <laughs> even the Arsenal folks uh, that want their team to do well. That's what they were. That's what they were talking about. As you said, Mourinho is 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 a little bit different in that he did have this aura. Is he becoming just simply a grumpy old man? And there is there is some entertainment value in a grumpy old man, but I think it's limited. Is he becoming that grumpy old man where it's just redundant, it's the same old things, uh, he doesn't have anything necessarily to back it up in terms of, of real trophies, uh, although second place last year with Manchester United is, is nothing, is a, a feat, and I know he, he, he let us know how much of a feat it was, but it, I, th- I think it, it did deserve praise and recognition. However, when it's coming from Jose Mourinho, you kind of want more, and you expect more, and given the amount of money, and given what Manchester United has been, and what still claims at times they are, but we all know aren't, uh, that was something to be expected. But do you think that, first off, do you think he continues on? Well, uh, there's an expression in Brazil called corpo mole. Everybody knows that. Which means when the players want a manager to get fired, and they start mailing in games. And I caught the first whiff of that uh, this past weekend against West Ham. I, I watched that game because uh, West Ham have one of my favorite Brazilian players, Felipe Anderson. So they're like appointment viewing now every week. And and I thought I caught the first whiff of that. So that bears watching because if that continues over the next few games and the United hierarchy feels like the players have quote unquote quit on him, then I think you have to make a change. But if not, there's still enough talent there uh, that they'll get enough results that I, I don't think he'll go. Do you think he has soon. lost his mojo? Do you think he's lost his magic? And and more importantly. Do you think the game has passed him by? And, all, all, and, and this is where the ageism comes in, because I have, I have never seen a young coach, young manager, be accused of having the game pass him or her by. It's always the, it's always the older managers and stuff like that. So I want to be very, very respectful and careful as to, has the game passed him by? Do you think it's passed him by because he is of a different generation and time, and therefore that happens? Because keep in mind... The, the person that is always there and that shadow that looms large is Sir Alex Ferguson. One of the great things, I think, and what, what made him great was that he was able to span these different generations and it didn't pass him by. He evolved and he changed. Not drastically, he still had his, his guiding principles, but he recognized that he couldn't treat a player in the aughts the same way that he played, treated a player in the 80s or the 90s. And that's, I think, what ultimately made him, made him successful. Is, he, is Marino just so stubborn and stuck in his ways that he, he doesn't have the ability to evolve? I think he's still a good manager, but his brand is not that he's the good one. It's that he's, a, he's the special one. And I think uh, he looks around and, he, and he, deep down he knows that there are other managers doing more special things than him, the peps and the clops, and, and that those managers are more beloved by fans of their clubs than, than, than United fans love him. And I think it really bothers him. So what in the past was this confidence and this swagger that was intoxicating, I think now it's a, it's a lot of insecurity masquerading as confidence. And he's trying so hard to sell you that he's doing a better job at United than he is. You know, after they won the Europa League his first season, he's running around holding up three fingers to indicate a treble. That was the Community Shield, the League Cup, and the Europa League. <laughs> a Europa League in which they beat nobody. That trophy fell in their lap. And he's trying to sell you that, that they won a treble that season. And then talking about how finishing second last season was one of the most amazing achievements of his career. I don't buy that at all. 
The only team last season that had a clearly better squad than them was Man City, and they finished like 20 points above them. United's squad was very comparable to Liverpool, Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal. So finishing a couple of points ahead of those teams, to me, is not some monumental achievement. I don't feel like United like really overachieved last season, but he's trying so hard to say that. And the amazing thing is he walks into these press conferences, and it's all about defending Jose Mourinho, not Manchester United. He's bringing up trophies he won with past clubs. He's putting down his own team and saying, like, it's an amazing achievement by me with this team to finish wherever. So if I'm a United fan, I'm watching that. I'm thinking, like, wait a minute, is this about us or is this just about you and your legacy and defending your reputation? So I think that's where he's getting himself in, in some trouble. So how does this all play out ultimately, Moss? Do you think there's a change that's made? Yeah, I think at some point he's going to leave, and it's going to be fascinating what his next move is because we were talking about this in the control room this week. I don't think Mourinho's a guy, his ego, he would never deign to like take a step down and go to a second-tier club. Right. So his outlet to be able to spin it like it's not a step back is to take over a national team, maybe take over Portugal, and some people have even floated the possibility of taking over the U.S. because he could spin that as you know, just something totally different. Right. I just want to do this in my career. So that could potentially be where we're headed because otherwise you start to think uh, if, it, if it flames out at United, uh, where would he go as far as a big, big club? I mean, there are a couple of possibilities there, but it would be it would depend on the guy that's there now really flaming out and then being desperate enough to, to uh, hire Jose. I mean, when I say desperate enough, uh, I did a, a Mossy Makes the Case about this a while back, and so I'll, I'll just quickly reiterate my point. I think you can draw a line in his career after the treble with Inter. And before that, he won trophies at an absurd clip. His players loved them. They would run through a brick wall for him, and fans of the clubs he was at worshipped him. And since then, it's been eight seasons, two league titles, zero Champions League titles. He's constantly feuding with players, alienating his own fans, and playing an unattractive brand of football, which is in this era of the Super Club, where clubs are worried about their brand, is, is becoming more and more significant. And I think there's a legitimate question to be asked now of whether he's worth the trouble. Are the results so spectacular that they can outweigh all the negative stuff that he brings? And so if he leaves United, whatever next big club is thinking of hiring him, they're going to have to weigh that. I mean, does the, does the positive still outweigh the negative? I think at some point, at one point early in his career, clearly did. I'm not so sure anymore. Is it, and this is, we'll finish it up here because uh, this is still yet to be written, but you, you, you talked about what Mourinho is as a coach and, and as a person. It all plays in together. He has never been a romantic. He has never been someone whose teams play timeless and memorable styles. And, and I think he would admit that, probably not at a press conference, but, but he recognizes that this is how I like the game to be played, and ultimately that is what has gotten him success. So when you bring up Pep Guardiola, and I mentioned in my State of the Union as to this juxtaposition between, between managers and invariably between human beings, what Pep looks like next to Mourinho and uh, what Jurgen Klopp looks like next to Mourinho. And, and it's just, this happens in other sports. This happens uh, in other countries and leagues uh, around the world. Is it simply because if he were in the same position, I think they're in 10th place right now, but this team was flying, scoring goals. Every game was a, was a four to three type of affair. They attacked and never gave up. And they just, the soccer gods smile and, and, and things happened. How much of it is the way that he plays? How much of it is the person that he is? And then how much of it just really comes down to you win or lose? Yeah, I think all the, his personality and the way they play exacerbates it. Like I said, if he was still so successful, the, the results could outweigh all that. But it just, it, it, it puts, the way he is, it puts more pressure on the results. They have to be really good to, yeah. to sort of outweigh everything. And yeah, I just think, you know, his first go around at Chelsea when he was at Inter, 
we weren't yet in the era of the super club to the degree that we're in now, where there's such a, a, a disparity. And if you're one of those clubs that has all that money and is spending like crazy in the transfer market, boy, th there is an expectation that you, sh you ought to be able to play, not only win, but play some, some decent football and put, put an entertaining product out on the field week in and week out. So he's struggling with that as well. Why, why is Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp, because these are the two that we're, we're, we're talking about right now, why are they better coaches than Jose Mourinho, in your opinion? Or are they? As we've talked about on this podcast, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to sort of quantify what somebody does as a, at a big club with what they would do if they were coaching a, a sort of sure, mid-level sure, team. Sure. But they're all but, they are all right. at big clubs. They're all at elite so, clubs. They so, all have plenty of money. So I'll include the caveat that it could be that if you put all these guys at lesser clubs, Mourinho would stand out the most because he could still be the one to get results with less. That I don't know. It's possible that you could make that case. But if 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 you put all those guys at big clubs where they have the resources and top players, I just think. Pep and Klopp have an ability to get more out of their players and, and not only win, but but do so in, in, a, in a more exciting fashion that, that, that creates, won, a, creates, won creates an League, overall better right? feeling. Yeah, but I think it's an intangible thing. I mean, you know, Mourinho tries to, you could tell. He, he oh, it's he, intangible. He respects. Oh, he respects that's such a cop-out. Come you know, on. But, but, you know, you could tell Mourinho, he, he respects Pep. I mean, he has issues with him, but at the end of the day, he recognizes that it's a guy that not only plays attractive football, but wins a lot. With he the has, best teams in the world. Right. He has a real issue with all this Klopp love. He keeps going back to that. He can't understand how a guy that hasn't won a trophy yet at Liverpool. But, you know, th there is an intangible aspect to it. And Klopp's brought this excitement to Liverpool that wasn't there before he got there. And, and what he's turned Mohamed Salah into and what he's turned Roberto Firmino into. And they're so fun to watch. And he has made them better. I mean, when he got there, they were a mess under Brendan Rodgers. And now they're getting to Champions League finals and looking like a potential Premier League titleist. So I think Mourinho just has to recognize it's not all about results. There is sort of an intangible element to it that's contributing to the good feeling around Liverpool yeah, but, and Klopp and the bad fine, feeling. But would you want Mourinho to be somebody he's not? Well, you, I, I don't buy a Mourinho that's contrite. I don't buy a Mourinho that is uh, humble. I don't buy a Mourinho that sits there and and and, and praises uh, his opponents. That's, that's not what he is. And it goes back to the character that Okay, maybe he was different before in terms of being a special one, but the character that he has created now, I still think has an incredible value and I still want to have around. And I think when we look at him right now, as you mentioned, if and when this, this, uh, this changes, what he goes to will be really, really interesting. That's why I answered that question in, on a couple weeks ago uh, on the pod about, you know, someone had thrown out Mourinho to the LA Galaxy. And, I, and I, I don't want him to escape I don't want him to go someplace. It's going to have to be different. As you said, he's not going to pull a, a Rafa Benitez type of thing and go to a Newcastle or something like that. But I, I, I still want him meaningful. I still want him vital to what's going on in the world. I don't want him to disappear, even in this form. You still, you, you still, you still believe he's a good coach? Still believe he's a okay. good coach. Yeah. And I agree with your overall premise. It, it's still having him around. There's still some value to that. I mean, absolutely. If you're a pundit yeah. or something like that, this is, this is content. He gives it to you uh, on a consistent basis. Pep and, and Klopp do in different ways, but y you can't have a hero without a villain. And he has played this, uh, this villain role very, very well. The animosity and the back and forth between him and the press, they, they will yell and scream and they will eat it up. And as I said, the, the sanctimony will drip from all corners. And yet they will run back and they will write their stories and they will file their reports. And they will say, thank you, thank you, thank you when they go to bed at night for somebody that has that type of personality and that gives them that content on a continual basis. All right. Uh, still so much to come when it comes to Jose Mourinho. I think, I don't think that this is, uh, certainly, I don't think this 
this is the end, but when it comes to results and certainly losing over the weekend right now, uh, they're going to have to pay him out a boatload of money, which isn't something new, and uh, he recognizes that. So if this were to change, who then comes in? We talk about Zidane, we talk about all those things. Who comes in? And then maybe maybe more importantly or more interestingly, what does Jose Mourinho do and become if he is not the manager going forward of Manchester United? All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. Yes, it's time for that point in the pod when uh, Mossy makes his case. All right, David, what are you talking about this week? What's eating you? What is what? What is the problem? What are you going to scream and yell about this week? My case is that the search continues for a successor to Messi and Ronaldo. Last week, Luka Modric won the FIFA Best Award, which is significant because there are two major Player of the Year awards, the FIFA one and the Ballon d'Or. They were separate. Then they merged for a while. It became the FIFA Ballon d'Or. Now they're separate again. But whatever incarnation they've existed in, over the last 10 years, only Messi and Ronaldo had won those awards. Modric becomes the first player other than Messi and Ronaldo to win one of those awards since Kaká in 2007. So it is absolutely noteworthy that he won. But it's also a bit anticlimactic. Over the last few years, people have been discussing uh, who's going to be that player to finally end the Messi-Ronaldo duopoly. But implicit in that debate was that whichever player finally bested Messi and Ronaldo for one of these awards, in doing so, was going to be taking the baton as the best player in the world, was going to be stamping himself as that quote-unquote next guy. It was going to feel like we were entering a new era. None of that happened here, with all due respect to Luka Modric, who is a wonderful player. But you're talking about a 33-year-old midfielder who I don't think is ever going to sniff this award again. This feels like a total random one-off. It feels like Fabio Cannavaro winning in 2006. Frankly, it's going to be the answer to a trivia question many years from now. So I think the search continues for a real successor. Uh, For a long time, people thought it was inevitable that Neymar was going to be that next guy. I'm not so sure about that anymore. Is it going to be Mbappe? Is it going to be somebody else? And Eden Hazard? But I'll tell you who I don't think it's going to be. Luka Modric. Wow. Down on Luka. His name is Luka. So, okay. I I think that this is a an expected and a natural type of reaction from the voters, okay? As you mentioned, people not only were looking for it, people were dying for it. And in in a certain way, it's, it's sad because we have taken for granted what we are seeing, which is two of the greatest players ever to play the game, arguably on either side, you could argue the best player ever to play the game uh, from a men's perspective. And when they consistently win things over and over and over again. Uh, we know that, for, for the most part, it's a popularity contest, but it gets boring after a while, and you're looking for something. And that Luka Modric had this year, and so you could put up the stats, and then, most importantly, without the World Cup, this doesn't happen. Okay? The, the ability to combine a World Cup where he was a leader of a team that nobody expected to do what they did, that, I think gave people the license to do what they've wanted to do for a long time and just couldn't because there was such a gulf between Messi and Ronaldo and everybody else. I agree with you that we're not going to be talking about Luka Modric in the way that we annually talk about uh, and have talked about Messi uh, and Ronaldo going forward. It doesn't mean that he didn't deserve it. Timing in life is everything, Mossy. Uh, the ability that uh, it, the moment when we started this podcast, you were available, you were here. All of that is is as important as your ability to do the job. And the timing of Luka Modric when he came about having that that moment was crucial to why uh, to why this happened. And I will just say this uh, when it, when it comes to other sports. So you know, back in the day when when, when I was growing up, it was. Bird and Magic, and then along came Jordan. So there was, but then there was that that period where they were gone, 
And who, who, who was left? Well, it took a while for someone like LeBron James to come up. And I know there's basketball people out there that would say this person, this one. But let's be honest. In terms of that highest echelon of player, it took a while for LeBron to come in. You've talked about Mbappe, and, and, but that's still a long way away before he reaches the heights uh, that a Messi or Ronaldo have, have achieved. And that's, that's not a, necessarily a bad thing. That's just the way that the world works and human beings work and cycles, uh, cycles work right now. Were you, were you angry that Luka Modric won Player of the Year? No, I think it's a defensible choice, but I definitely think he benefited from uh, this sentiment of let's give it to somebody else. We're sick of giving it to Messi and Ronaldo. Uh, Messi wasn't even in the final three. Uh, Ronaldo not only got snubbed for this award, but he got snubbed for the Pushkas Award for Goal of the Year. They gave it to Mohamed Salah for a goal he scored against Everton, which no way was a better goal than Ronaldo's bicycle against Juventus. Even Liverpool fans were puzzled by that selection. So the overall vibe was... Uh, enough of Messi and Ronaldo. And by the way, those two guys kind of validated that sentiment by not showing up to the ceremony and acting like they were above it all. There, there were three uh, controversial absences from this ceremony, Messi, Ronaldo, and Alexi Lalas, who <laughs> they're nice enough to invite, and the guy doesn't even show I, up. I turned it down. I yeah, turned it down. Yes. Uh, I, it, was, uh, it was, yeah, for a number of reasons, I, I, uh, I turned it down. But, but, it wasn't, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't uh, standing and, on And by the way, when Messi and Ronaldo heard that, that contributed have, to that match. Absolutely, they, but, they said, it's not going to be a party without him. Look, Where, why are we going? <laughs> look, let me say this. Uh, Messi and Ronaldo have never won a World Cup. Uh, neither one of them has ever had a particularly great World Cup. So in World Cup years is when there is an opening to give it to somebody else because those guys are untouchable at club level, but they have been upstaged at World Cups. The only issue is they've had two other chances to do it and didn't. In 2010, Messi scored zero goals in five games. Argentina lost 4-0 to Germany in the quarterfinals. Spain won the World Cup playing this transcendent football. Iniesta scored the extra time winner in the final against the Netherlands. There was a huge sentiment to give it to Iniesta that year, and they still gave it to Messi. In 2014, Ronaldo was awful. Portugal got knocked out in the group stage. Germany won the World Cup. There was a huge sentiment to give it to a German player. They still gave it to Ronaldo. So fast forward to 2018. What was different about this? You know, they, they, Ronaldo and Modric played for the same club last season. And no matter what hipsters try to tell you, Ronaldo was the more, most important player on that team. He scored 15 goals in the Champions League. He's the biggest reason they won the Champions League. So at club level, he had the edge. And it's not like he had a bad World Cup. He scored four goals, hat-trick against Spain. So you have to just feel so strongly about what uh, Modric did. And, and it was historic for Croatia to get to the final and all those extra times. We kept thinking they were going to be tired. They kept coming back game after game and still playing well. And he was at the heart of it all. So it, it was amazing. So I guess that was just enough to overtake, combined with this sentiment of let's give it to somebody else. So I think it's a defensible choice. But boy, you could still make a case that club and country last 12 months Taken in totality, Ronaldo's year was still the better. Wow, year. just dumping all over poor little Modric, <laughs> the poor guy. He's you know he's he's being brought up on charges now, and he's he's had a he's had a great year, but he's also had a difficult year, and he can't even just just give the guy a bone. You know, alienating my Croatian fans. It's uh, it's, it's horrible. Uh, well, I mean, he he has provided some wonderful moments, and no matter what, he can for the rest of his life say that he was a Player of the Year. Let me say one last thing. Though. Yes, there's still a huge sentiment in Europe that the Ballon d'Or is the bigger award. Ever since FIFA created their award in 1991, they've been trying to upstage the Ballon d'Or, and they haven't been able to. As I mentioned, they merged with it for a while. Now they're separate again. They've tried rebranding it, changing the way the voting works, the way the format is, creating this big gala, and yet there's still a lot of people in Europe that feel like this is the Golden Globes and the Oscars are still to come. And so they're saying, well, let's see if Modric can win that. So that's going to be announced December 3rd. So, But is that the best player in the world or the best player in Europe? 
it's the best player in the world. Both of them are the best players. Yeah, in the world. yeah. And and let me say this: I don't view a Player of the Year award as synonymous with saying this guy's the best player in the world. I mean, you mentioned LeBron. <laughs> well, then what do you well, view it because the circumstances of that year can lead you to vote for one guy. There are seasons in the NBA where I think somebody other than LeBron James deserves the MVP, even while still thinking LeBron James was the best player in the NBA. I, I think you can have that. For for instance, Messi was not one of the three finalists. Does anybody not think that Messi's still one of the three yeah, but best it's not players called in the world? The most valuable player award. Well, okay? uh, but this it's is player called- of the year. Yeah, and player of the year. The circumstances that year. The uh, best of, player in the year. The circumstances that year of, of a guy's team on, doing something lost. special and so you feel like you have to honor him can sort of lead you to one direction or the other. But I don't feel like we all have to walk around now and refer to Luka Modric as the best player in the world. But I think. Has, has this award ever been given to somebody outside of Europe? No, no. no. It, for a long time, it was uh, just European and that, now they've changed it. But a lot of people still think that there's, there's a bias uh, you know, there, there's no scenario where somebody playing in South America or even like MLS or something would ever be considered for this award. You have to be playing in Europe in one of the exactly. prominent so, leagues. Why, but why? Well, because those are perceived to be the best. Okay. So doing well there carries more weight than, than doing well anywhere else. All right. Well, <laughs> I think we've established that uh, David Mossy hates Croatians pretty much, and or certainly hates uh, Luka Modric. But I'm going to say publicly, I love Croatians, and I love Luka Modric. Congratulations, Luka, on behalf of all of us here, except for Mossy here at the State <laughs> of the Union. We want to congratulate you on your award. Uh, thoroughly deserving, as far as I'm concerned, and you should celebrate it throughout the year uh, while you're playing. And, and certainly, we wish you all the luck on the field and off the field with the uh, litigation that's coming your way. Uh, okay. Okay, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for Ask Alexi when we respond to your questions, comments, and concerns that have attached to them the Ask Alexi hashtag. And, and make sure you do send those in uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever, and use that Ask Alexi hashtag. And who knows, maybe in the future, David Mossy will read your question, comment, or concern as he is about to do right here. All right, what do the people want to know? First up, at FoodieCubed312. Who do you think are the top three players on the current U.S. men's national team and why? Okay, so the current U.S. men's national team, and I'm putting that in quotes because it, it's so fluid right now with the fact that there is no head coach, uh, or full-time head coach. Dave Sarikin, I think, has done a good job over the last year, but we are pretty sure that he's not going to be that head coach. But he is in charge, along with newly appointed Ernie Stewart, of naming this team. Uh, as we speak, the roster for the upcoming game against Columbia and Peru, you can catch the game against Columbia on FS1, by the way. We will be televising that. Uh, that roster is coming through. And the question before this roster came out was, in this round of games, was Dave Sarakin slash the U.S. soccer hierarchy there, were they going to bring back any of the old guard? Because until then, they had pretty much stuck with uh, players uh, that were young, um, that were less experienced, some very uh, had very little experience. So I can tell you here right now, and you, you will have, have seen this by the time the, this pod drops, that uh, for those who were asking for potential Josie Altator inclusion, or, or weren't asking for it, or a potential Michael Bradley inclusion, or weren't asking for it, or a potential Brad Guzan uh, inclusion, or weren't asking for it, two of the three have been named. Uh, Josie Altador misses out. Michael Bradley gets a call-up to the national team. His 140 caps of experience gets called in. And then Brad Guzan, which isn't as surprising as a Michael Bradley, because Brad Guzan, I think, will recognize that his role going forward, 
I don't want to say he's just going to accept it, but I think this is Zach Steffen's job to lose. So my my long answer, that's a long answer, so you want the short answer. Who are the three most important? Obviously, Christian Pulisic, who, by the way, is included in this roster, uh, would be there at number one. I think that someone like Tyler Adams uh, would be in that three. And then I think from a defensive standpoint, I think I'll, I think I'll say Brooks, but I can be persuaded about Matt Miazga in terms of the importance. So there's a, you know, it's not really a spine, but those are three players that I think are very, very important. Just a note on this too, Josh Sargent, Bobby Wood, and uh, Novakovic are the players up top. Does not fill your uh, heart and soul with confidence, but Josh Sargent, uh, who has of late been at least training with the first team over there at Werder Bremen, you know, when... Uh, Princess Leia says, uh, you are our only hope. I think there's a lot of that when it goes to Josh Sargent. In the mutant gene, we are trusting the future of scoring goals. So I hope he comes good from a national team perspective and from a club perspective going forward. So those will be the three right now, but I, I, it can change. And I'm not, uh, and, and it's a bigger conversation and we will have that conversation next week when it comes to this roster and as it applies to this game and it, as in particular, someone like Michael Bradley getting called in. Uh, Christian Pulisic right now flipping through his Rolodex of excuses to figure out how he's going to get out of these oh, uh, games. Oh, Mossy killing, killing Modric. October 11th. Ooh, <laughs> I actually... <laughs> I got reservation. <laughs> Next, at GM Blake. It seems like Bundesliga is a better league than MLS. That is my perception anyway. I'm open to another point of view. Isn't it better for our best U.S. men's national team players to play in that league versus MLS? I think this is a response to your State of the Union last week where mm-hmm. you talked about MLS not giving sure. playing time to American players and, and how that could potentially be damaging to the national team, but he's spinning it as a positive. It forces them to go to right. the Bundesliga. There's actually a benefit there. So, All right, uh, GM Blake, here you go. First off, Uh, And I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. The best league in the world uh, is the one that you love. You can no more tell me that this league is better than this league uh, than you can tell me that this person is better looking or this wine is better or this food is better or this music is better. It is subjective or this piece of art is, is better. It is subjective. It's the one that fills your heart with joy. Okay? Number two. I will pull it up here right now just so I have it in front of me. The German national team... Uh, that got bomb- that bombed out of the group stage was, for the most part, players that play in the Bundesliga. Now, I'm not here arguing or defending Bundesliga versus MLS. That's not what I'm. That's not what I'm here to do. But all I'm saying is, when a Landon Donovan and Demarcus Beasley, who are playing in Major League Soccer, go and break out and have wonderful World Cups as they have d- done so in the past, when a Frankie Hadek or a Eddie Pope or something like that uh, do that in the past, your ability to do well with the national team, in my perspective, is not necessarily dependent on where you are playing. Just because you are playing in what people consider to be a superior league to Major League Soccer or any other league for that for that matter, doesn't mean that when you get to the national team, you are going to be better. Are you hedging your bets in some cases? Absolutely. Do I want to see American players playing and playing consistently in a league like uh, Bundesliga? Yes. And in particular in a league like the Bundesliga, because I think they foster youth talent. I think they respect and value youth talent. And and, and I think they respect and value American talent in a way that isn't done in other leagues. So when you ask me, 
it's well, when you say you state that Bundesliga is a better league than MLS. Okay, fine. We can have that argument all all day long, and you can have your criteria. I can have my criteria. In some ways, it is better. Maybe in some ways, uh, it, it's it's not as good. It, that's my perception. That was your perception. Is it better though for the U.S. men's national team to have players that play in Bundesliga in this case versus MLS? Number one, it depends where they're playing. Okay, you know, Bobby Wood right now is playing in the Bundesliga. All right. Is is he benefiting from that? Well, you can argue that the training day in and day out, maybe you believe that it's better. You can argue that even playing for a bad team and not getting much service at all and not replicating what will happen when he's with the national team for the most part, it's still better than if he was playing for, I don't know, pick a team, the Philadelphia Union or something like that. All I care about is that you are playing and playing consistently. If it's in the Bundesliga, if it's Major League Soccer or anybody else, that's what's going to make you, uh, that's what's going to make you better. So uh, I don't know if I answered your question completely, but I would, to, to sum it up, I will debate you as to whether it is a better league. And number two, I don't necessarily think that just because somebody is playing in the Bundesliga, in this case is what you're talking about, that that necessarily means that the U.S. men's national team is going to be better. And we have documentation in the past that, actually enables us to argue both ways, which is the fun thing about it. All right, what else? At Matt Rushing uh, 02. Hey, Alexi, exclamation point. What can the Sounders do to turn around their slide? Matt Rushing. So the the Seattle Sounders, first off, they won emphatically last week, but I think they played against uh, Colorado, which isn't really, shouldn't even be a three-point win at this point with what Colorado is. Um, And when I look at the Seattle Sounders. They are in a precarious position right now, sitting at 47 points uh, with Real Salt Lake at 46 and the LA Galaxy coming up hot and heavy behind them at 44. And that could be problematic. So what what do they need to do to turn it around? Well, first off, they did turn it around. This is a team that went on a historic win streak uh, in the middle of this year. Uh, And now we're getting down to the nitty gritty here. And you got to have someone like Lodero uh, be playing and playing consistently and playing well. I think he is crucial to the team. You also have to guy, have to guy like Chad Barrett, maybe the most undervalued player in Major League Soccer history uh, from a defensive standpoint who is crucial to be healthy and on that field uh, playing. They're not going to change. This is what the Seattle Sounders are. It's good enough to make the playoffs. I don't think it's good enough to win MLS Cup. Uh, so, And there's nothing they can do from a roster standpoint now to change. But they are a competitive team, but it's going to come down to it. And this gets us into the question when it comes to Major League Soccer and, and the situation right now with the, with the standings. It, it is coming down to it, and there are fights for the Supporters' Shield. There are major fights for that line and being above that line, which separates, for better or worse, the good from the bad, success from failure, which is the playoff uh, line. As I said before, the LA Galaxy are coming on hot and heavy to try to uh, get in there ahead of Real Salt Lake or Seattle at 47. Uh, and so these last couple of games are going to be wonderful. On the other side, you got DC United talk about coming on hot and heavy with Wayne Rooney and Luciano Acosta doing great. They are right underneath and they beat up on Montreal Impact who they are chasing right now. So, look, I don't think Seattle can do anything to change what they are, but what they are is a competitive team. And if they make the playoffs, they will be competitive. I don't think they have enough to go to MLS Cup. All right, what else? That is it. That is it. All right, thank you for uh, sending in your questions with the hashtag AskAlexi. Do that and continue to do that, and we will use uh, some of those going forward here uh, on the pod. All right, moving on. The Back Three. 
All right, we're coming down to the end. And as always, we have our back three, some of the biggest stories, games, moments, things to talk about uh, out there. Mossy, what does our back three entail this week? All right, first up, we're going to do a little European weekend review. There were lots of big games. Uh, we're not, we're not going to get to all of them, but we'll do as much as we can. Uh, let's start in England with Chelsea-Liverpool. Uh, I actually watched this game at the Stocking Horse, which is a Chelsea pub uh, close to where we work. I walk in there, and who do I see? Our producer, Alex Dowd. As you know, nine times out of ten, I would have avoided him, but I was feeling unusually social. So I actually went up, said hello, joined his group, which consisted of uh, a couple of his buddies, this uh, lovely young lady, Emily, who works uh, at Fox. So we all watched the game together, fun times, except for the fact I ordered a breakfast sandwich and it never came. Wow. Yeah. They probably don't like uh, Brazilian Americans there. So I just want to hit on this, uh, and we mentioned it from the top of the show. So you've gone hiking this weekend, and you were social in that you interacted with other human beings in a social setting in this bar. You are you are evolving. You are you are growing, my friend. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yes, because uh, we know how much you hate to interact with any uh, human beings in any type of setting. Correct. Uh, so that's good. All right, baby steps, my man. Baby, uh, baby steps. As far as the the game, it was a terrific match. Both yep. teams played very well. I think showed that they're legitimate contenders to win the title. Chelsea's goal was a thing of beauty, this flowing passing move, Kovacic with the through ball. Eden Hazard, who is playing as well as any player in the world right now, left-footed finish past Alisson. I know it's disappointing for Chelsea to concede that equalizer so late, but and the way it came, Sturridge from distance, I mean, it sort of came out of nowhere. But on balance of play, I think a draw was the fair result. Liverpool created enough chances. Salah had that ball cleared off the line by Rudiger in the first half. Firmino had that header cleared off the line by David Luiz. So uh, to me, Liverpool were good value for that draw. So they get out of there 1-1. Uh, and I'll tell you, Sturridge, four goals this season. He's a very useful player to have on the bench. I think he's going to continue to score some big goals for them. Malign, much maligned Sturridge. <laughs> So where are they? So this is so one, two, three over there in the EPL is Man City, Liverpool, and Chelsea. Not necessarily a surprise. I think you can take the top six in the, the Premier League right now and divide it into two groups of three. It's going to be Manchester City, Liverpool, and Chelsea battling for the title, and then United if they don't completely implode. Arsenal and Tottenham battling for fourth place. Um, why, why is Eden Hazard playing so well? Why do you think his the, the enigma that he is? Yeah, it's, I mean, Chelsea as a club are so fascinating to me, the way they blow hot and cold from season to season. And and Rory Smith, who's one of my favorite writers for the New York Times, wrote a column about David Luiz and how no player is more emblematic of that than right. David Luiz the last year. Now he's starting again it's and crazy, playing well. Huh? And <laughs> it's crazy. It's, I mean, it's they had him retiring uh, not so long ago, and there's no there's no club in the world that could possibly play with this guy, and <laughs> it's ridiculous, and he doesn't really play a position, and he's all, you know, free-forming it all over the place. And, and Hazard, now, too. Yeah, the guy went like a year without scoring a goal at one point and now is playing like this. Yeah, I mean, the goal he scored against Liverpool uh, earlier in the week in the League Cup was just absolutely incredible. So he is in his zone right now. And and any time that we have these, we talk about super clubs a lot on this uh, on this pod, any time that any of the super clubs out there drop points, we saw it with Bayern Munich, who had a horrible week this week. Juve still cruising along, right? Uh, they haven't they haven't had a uh, blip on the screen yet. Madrid didn't get their three points, and Barcelona didn't get their three points. So now I have everybody's a lot saying, to say oh, about that. Okay, what well, are you why don't we say? do Germany first? Because okay. you're very much a Bundesliga guy now. Uh, huge. Uh, it was a Bayern, bad bad day for uh, Nico Kovac. A well, bad Bayern, bad week for. Yeah, Nico they lose Kovac. to Hertha Berlin on Friday on the heels of dropping points against Augsburg. Dortmund, meanwhile, hammered Nuremberg seven 0 and then have this amazing come from behind win over Leverkusen. They are now atop the table. We at Fox have been craving a title race yes. ever since we got the Bundesliga. Is this the year? Have you seen enough to believe that Dortmund are going to be able to go toe-to-toe with them and we could have a legitimate well, we race? We saw this last year, Mossy, and we, and we saw the dip in form that resulted in a manager change for Bayern Munich, and then 
they kicked on and that was it. They, they said goodbye. Now we're, we're back. So it's, I, I would love to say that there is going to be a race at the top, but I still think that Bayern Munich pulls ahead and, and finishes it off. And, you know, Jovan Karaski from the start, uh, our colleague slash Los Angeles Galaxy employee, uh, has has said from the start that he believes that Borussia Dortmund is going to challenge it. Well, they're sitting in first place right now. Christian Pulisic's Borussia Dortmund sitting in first place ahead of Bayern Munich. Bad, bad week for Bayern Munich. Lucien Favre's brought like a defensive solidity there with Witzel and Delaney in the midfield, and they're still explosive going forward. Paco Alcacer is fitting great. He's scoring goals. As you mentioned, you got Pulisic and Royce and Sancho. So I'm with you. I need to see a little bit more to totally buy it, but it's it's not out outside the realm of possibility hope, this I season. I hope. That would yeah, be great. We're that hoping. Would be great. Now, as far as Spain, some amazing happenings there. Uh, midweek last week, Barcelona lost away to Leganes. Real Madrid got thumped away to Sevilla. It was the first time Barcelona and Real Madrid lost in the same round since January 2015. And then they followed that up this week and Barcelona draw at home to Bilbao. Real Madrid draw at home to Atletico, which was a pretty good game. I thought some good chances both ways. The goalkeepers, Courtois and Oblak came up big. But if you look at the La Liga table right now, the top four, they're all bunched together. Barcelona, Real Madrid, Sevilla and Atletico all within two points of each other. And I think it might stay that way. I'm very high on Sevilla. I think they're for real. I love the way they're playing with Pablo Machin. They have... Two really good strikers in Andres Silva and Ben Yedder. Banega's playing great. Him and Vasquez and Sarabia providing the creativity there. Jesus Navas and Guilherme Aranha flying down those wings. I think Sevilla for real. I'm very high on Atletico. And I don't think Barcelona and Real Madrid are that great. So I think La Liga is more competitive at the top than it's been in a long time. It could actually be a four-team race this season. I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. Do you well, no, buy but you said it's that? a four-team race, but the same two horses are going to be at the top, ultimately. We'll see. You know, as far as Barcelona and Real Madrid not being that good, it's somewhat understandable for Real Madrid. They did lose Cristiano Ronaldo. As much as they tried to act like that, yes. business as He's usual, this season there is kind of a transition-y feel to it. Uh, there's no excuse for Barcelona. With the signings they made, the squad they had, they thought they were going to be a juggernaut this season and run away with La Liga and be the favorites to win the Champions League. And they are not playing that well. And I'm starting to have serious doubts about Ernesto Valverde. He, he might be in over his head. Uh, there. I mean, the way he rotates, you know, they, they, certain managers have a knack for rotating and having the right players on the field, and he doesn't seem to have that. Uh, the, the, but, but what the, has to happen for that to change to happen? I don't know. The, they're, the, they're first place. They're going to continue on yeah, with Champions but, League. But they're fine, not but. playing as well as they should with the players. They have. The, the Messi thing, I'll give him a pass. Ian Joy was all worked up about the fact he left Messi out of the starting lineup right. this past week against Bilbao, and there's an argument that he's not playing for Argentina, so he has these international breaks to rest, so do you really need to be rotating Messi? But Valverde is very much adopting a Zidane, Ronaldo approach from the last couple of years. He feels like, you know, Messi can't play every game. you got to find ways to rest him. And home to Bilbao, who had been struggling. He thought it was a game he could get away with it. And sure enough, they're losing in the second half. He has to bring Messi on to eke out a draw. The larger issue there is when they've spent all this money, uh, why are they still so dependent on Messi and they can't even afford to leave him out even against the riffraff in Spain? Shouldn't the team at home with Suarez and Dembele and Coutinho and Rakitic and Busquets and guys like that, they ought to be able to win some games uh, and, and be able to give Messi a breather every now and then. It seems like they can't. Anytime he's not on the field, they look terrible. So there are some issues at Barcelona right now, some issues with Ernesto Valverde. Issues, um, come on. It's all, rel- it's all relative. <laughs> There's plenty you, of teams I'm, out there that would love to so have you're their not, issues. So you're not buying what I'm selling. I'm here. not buying what you're selling. All right, what's next? Okay. So let's move on to the second back three topic, which is the match day two of the Champions League on tap this week. And we, we, we ended with Barcelona. We'll, we'll pick it up with Barcelona again. They're involved in the big match. Tottenham, Barcelona at Wembley. You know I love these Premier League versus La Liga bragging rights showdowns. Uh, what are your overall impressions uh, going into this game? Anything? Spurs, for me, I, I think are really, really interesting in that this whole uh, concept of not doing anything and standing pat and believing this is who we are, we're not going to bring anybody in, we're not going to make any changes. Uh, I, 
in, in, in we talked earlier about being romantic or at the very least being entertaining. And I think this is, this is something different. This is something that sets you up for criticism, but I also think sets you apart and, and should, should be valued and applauded for doing something like this in this day and age. Because if it's, if it's just about, well, every, every time there's, a, oh, there's a, uh, a transfer window, you got to go out and buy more players. Okay, that's fine. Then that's, then that's the new norm, fine. But they bucked that trend. In order for that to, to be validated, uh, they got to figure it out. I think the jury's still out when it comes to their EPL uh, form right now, even though they're sitting in, in fourth place. And now, this is it. This is a huge, huge game. I don't think that they get by. I think Barcelona finds a way to beat them. This is at Wembley, right? Correct. <laughs> They're yeah. going to play at Wembley for the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the other big games. Uh, Man City have some pressure on them after losing to Lyon. Match they won. They're away to Hoffenheim. Bayern play host to Ajax, which is kind of tasty. I like Ajax this season, although they just, they just got thumped by PSV recently. And then Napoli hosts Liverpool. Let me ask you a random question about that. Alex Dowd included this stat in the rundown. He's very proud of it. Carlo Ancelotti, who is the Napoli manager now, has never lost a European match to Liverpool. Now, that's technically true because UEFA counts pelling kicks as a draw. Right. But Ancelotti was the AC Milan manager in Istanbul in 2005. And I don't know, when you face a team in the final and at the end they're holding the trophy and you're not, it's hard for me to buy you touting your unbeaten record against them. What do you make of this whole a match that goes to penalty kicks is officially a draw? It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous. Okay, it's uh, it's like when people say uh, that a penalty uh, shootout is a is a, a coin toss. It's you know it's just random. It's a lottery. No, it's not. It is part of the game. You know it's coming. You know the potential for it to be there from the moment that you step on the field. This is nothing that's dropped on you. There is a a skill to it. There is something to be practiced. There is something to be valued. There is something to be applauded when it comes to uh, penalty kicks and winning on penalty kicks. And I think it's ridiculous that in the history books, we mark it up as a draw, tie, whatever you want to call it, But because nobody else does. Nobody. I've never seen anybody that lost on penalties when asked what, how how'd the game end, say we tied. <laughs> nobody ever says that. Nobody, nobody does that. It's, it's uh, so. Yeah, you're right. That is, uh, that is ridiculous. So we're, we're, we're dealing with technicalities here, um, but ultimately, uh, Ancelotti knows the game he lost. Right, Alex Dowd. Uh, he felt so good about himself. <laughs> I just crushed him. Hey, no, that's good. That's good content. Yep. All right. Last but not least, the U.S. women. We're going to be talking about them a lot yes, in the next we are. few months because we're building up to the Women's World Cup next summer in France. I can't wait. Uh, the U.S. women hoping to be there to defend their crown. They won in Canada in 2015, but they have to qualify first. Qualifying begins this week, the CONCACAF Women's Championship, uh, which you can watch the U.S. matches on Fox Sports. I know you're going to be covering that. What are your overall thoughts about the U.S. women right now entering qualifying and looking ahead to next summer's World Cup? Well, and these are famous last words, especially given what's happened over the last year. It shouldn't even be a question that the U.S. women's team qualify for the World Cup, notwithstanding what happened to the men's team. This is the U.S. women. Uh, they are so far ahead of most of their opponents, not most of their, all of their opponents when it comes to uh, CONCACAF, and for the most part in the world, that it should just be a simple matter of uh, getting to the semis, winning the semifinal, uh, and booking their place for France uh, next summer. I hope that the soccer gods don't look at me and say, no, not so fast. Having said that, so I'm just going to assume that they are going to qualify for France next summer. And if and when they do, they are obviously the defending world champions. Uh, they are defending their uh, their World Cup win 
uh, from three and a half years ago. And this is a team that is still in transition. Jill Ellis, uh, the fact that she is still coach, I think is interesting and worth talking about because uh, there was times and certainly there are folks out there that believe that a change needed to be made and should have been made. It wasn't. She continues on and we've seen in the game in general, multiple cycles don't always work out. So that's going to be interesting. She has gone out of her way to inject new and young and I think uh, incredibly talented players into this lineup. But, you know, there's still players. I mean, we're, face, we're, we're looking at a situation right now where possibly everybody knows Carly Lloyd. Uh, Carly Lloyd is not a starter come next summer. We're looking at a situation where someone like, well, in the previous World Cup, it would have been Julie Johnson, but now Julie Ertz. Uh, who was a star and a complete player that you needed on the field each and every time at center back, now being uh, potentially and arguably the most important player as a central midfield type of uh, position. We're looking at a situation now where Alex Morgan continues to get better and better and better, but then you have players like Mallory Pugh and these types of players that are going to push for time and opportunity. So all of that being said, I can't wait for the qualifying to happen for the women to be professional and get the qualifying process out of the way. And then we worry about uh, the World Cup and defending the World Cup. And it is not going to be easy. It never is. It's going to be easy initially. But then we all know that once you get facing the Germanys and the uh, and the Frances as the host country with what's happened, uh, they are going to be gunning for this U.S. team right now. And Jill Ellis better have evolved and better have made this team better than it was four years ago, given the talent that she, uh, that she has at her disposal. Uh, Alex Dowd redeems himself here. He actually dug up a pretty good stat. What do you got? In 28 total qualifying matches through the years, the U.S. women have outscored the opposition 158-5. to five which I think speaks to your point that they are superior to yeah, their competition sure. in CONCACAF. But, and, and by the way, I was, I was doing the list of things that may change or, or, or continue on. Uh, no Hope Solo, too. Uh, the greatest goalkeeper when it comes to the women's game, uh, in my estimation, ever to play the game, and certainly uh, the greatest, one of the greatest players in U.S. Uh, soccer history, uh, not between the posts. Nair probably uh, continues on there and gets, uh, gets her opportunity. But... It's going to be fun to watch, and I can't wait for that tournament. I, I've said before, uh, the experience that I had back in 2015 in Vancouver, it was my first time, was, I've done plenty of World Cups, it was my first time doing a Women's World Cup, and it opened my eyes and it opened my mind. I enjoyed it so much, uh, being introduced and discovering the new players and the new teams, and I think if you just open your mind and and uh, and your heart to something different, and as I've said before, don't come at it with a compare and contrast with the men's game. Uh, it is the same game. We are playing the same game, but don't look at it uh, with that compare and contrast of the men's game. And I think you will thoroughly enjoy the, the competition that goes on on the field, the stories that go on around it, and the fact that, well, for the, for the only time, and certainly for the only time in the foreseeable future, you get to support an American national team that is the favorites, uh, that have some of the greatest players in the world, and that doesn't happen for a lot of countries except maybe Brazil and Spain, Germany, and these types of countries, and maybe France now to a certain extent when it comes to their uh, men's team. But from our women's perspective, uh, I'm really looking forward to next summer. Anything else? 
That is it as far as the back three. That is it as far as uh, the back three. So we come to the end of our podcast, and at the end, we always talk about our one big thing. And my one big thing goes back to the State of the Union, and it is Jose Mourinho. Uh, One of the reasons why we are talking about Jose Mourinho is because he moves the needle. There is an interest in this gentleman, and there has been for, let's say, the last, I don't know, 15 years, shall we say, when he first burst on the scene, because he was the special one. I say was because, as we talked about earlier on, uh, some of that specialness has worn off. Some would say it's non-existent right now. There is nothing special about the way that he does things and certainly about the way that he behaves. I will reiterate that I want a soccer landscape that has Jose Mourinho in it. I don't always agree with the things that he says. I don't always agree with the things that he does. But he makes it more interesting. I will say this also as it comes specifically to his team, and this applies to any sport and certainly other teams out there. When you're talking about a head coach, a manager, and the the whole concept of it's easier to fire a coach than it is to fire uh, the whole team, there is a responsibility uh, for some very, very good players. We can argue about whether they're on the level of previous generations of Manchester United uh, players, but there are some very expensive players. Uh, some players that have come that you thought were going to do more than, than, than they did. And the onus and the responsibility on a guy like Paul Pogba, who I think in this back and forth has probably benefited and has probably come out looking much better. And a lot of that has to do with what happened in the summer <laughs> with his team in the World Cup. The responsibility oftentimes falls on the coach. And he or she is, is changed and that might be the best thing for going forward for a team like Manchester United right now. But I will also say this. Manchester United knew exactly what they were getting into when they hired both Paul Pogba and Jose Mourinho. He hasn't changed at Manchester United. This is the, I believe, this is the person he has been for a long time now. And this is the coach that he has always been right now. I think ultimately when you are a coach and you leave, if this is the end for him, you have to be able to say that at the very least I did no harm. And I think he can certainly say that. But when you're a coach of Manchester United or any elite super club out there, you're also going to have to show that you progressed and you evolved. And I think that's where the debate and the argument as far as the results are and what he has left of that culture. And there's been a lot of talk about what that culture is right now. That's really what is going to be uh, left when he leaves. And I'm not sure that the perception out there is going to be that he helped progress that culture and the way that we look at Manchester United. And that's going to be on on his watch. And we'll see where he goes. We'll see what Manchester United does, if indeed they make a change. The other thing is, and I'll leave you with this, we change week to week in terms of how we see things and in terms of how our perception. And a few wins here or there and a few losses here or there. And Jose Mourinho and Manchester United, Manchester United may look very, very different. Remains to be seen, though, whether he's going to be given that time uh, to figure that out. Regardless, I love Jose Mourinho, uh, and I want to see him continue because I want that uh, incredible content that he generates on a consistent basis. All right, let us know what you think about Jose Mourinho, uh, about anything that we have talked about on the pod. Mossy, anything uh, you want to uh, finish off here before we sign off? Yes, one final note from me. My Seinfeld top 10 episodes list dropped on Twitter today. I posted it this morning. I have not read the comments yet. I'm sure they're all Hot positive. Take Monday, wow. Well, they're positive because, you know, on Twitter, when people disagree with you, they keep it to themselves. They don't like to... <laughs> 
so I'll go check that out. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, can you give us just at least a little teaser of, uh, of, of one that was on there? Well, uh, number one was the Keith Hernandez one. I, I said a couple weeks ago that would be number one. Uh, the Bubble Boy was number two. Uh, well, don't give it all away. They yeah. got to go see it. I, I, made, I made an interesting call. Uh, I decided that one-hour episodes count as one. Oh, Even really? though sometimes people view those as as two different half hours, but because you saw them on consecutive weeks, well, no. Though, when wait. they when they initially aired, they aired all at once, and there's never been a Seinfeld episode that picked up exactly where the previous one uh, right. left off. So I think you have no to time you have to look at the one hour <laughs> right. as one piece. It's like a like a musician releasing a double CD. We don't look at it as if you're ranking Tupac albums, you don't go well. All eyes on me, disc one is here, and then all eyes on me, disc two is somewhere else. You know, you you look at it as one piece. As sales, they counted as double. But anyway, uh, yeah. okay, that's interesting, Mossy. That is interesting. So go check out Mossy's top ten when it comes to uh, Seinfeld. Uh, your your favorite uh, show in ever is that uh, oh, right to say? Okay, your favorite show ever. Uh, that'll be up there. Check out all the different stuff uh, that we are doing. We'll have. More Bundesliga this week. As I mentioned, the U.S. national team roster is dropping well ahead of the games. This is something different. And so check that out. Let us know what you think of the roster that Dave Sarakin and Ernie Stewart have provided for these upcoming games, uh, including the one against Colombia that we will be televising on Fox. And then, as we also mentioned, coming up uh, is going to be the U.S. women's national team qualifying, hopefully, for next summer's World Cup in uh, in France. So a lot of stuff going on on the field and off the field, uh, for that matter. We will talk about that and more next week right here on the State of the Union podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and as always, size the day.